Listener production. Hey, Tom here. In today's briefing, why China's taken Australia out of the diplomatic deep freezer? Uh, this afternoon, I've just concluded a successful bilateral meeting with Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping. So that was last week. It was the first time an Australian Prime Minister had met the Chinese leader in six years, and there has been a lot of bad blood in between. So what's changed? Is it us or them? If they're cooling relations with Australia, there's kind of has to be a way to justify that to the public. And it's more neat to can say there's a new prime minister coming in mm. in Australia that seems to be more friendly, seems to be more reasonable and someone that China would want to work with. Some really interesting analysis on how China's behaving and what it means for us. That's our briefing. First, today's headlines with Rihanna Patrick. It's Thursday, the 24th of November. Hi, Tom. Hi, briefers. The New South Wales flood crisis has hit the town of Uabalong. Overnight, residents have been evacuated by air as the town got cut off by floodwaters. Everybody's coming in in helicopters to make sure that, you know, we save a, a little community like you have along. Yeah, dramatic scenes there. That's Peter Vlatko. He's from the Cobar Shire Council. So several hundred people have been working tirelessly to build uh, a levee to withstand the Lachlan River ahead of the peak today there in Uabalong. This could be a higher peak than what they saw in the 1950s, so a massive flood there too. Yeah, and the town of Moulamine, about 400 kilometres southwest of Uabalong, is also under threat and expected to be isolated for weeks. This flood crisis just keeps on going and going and going. It's like a slow-motion car crash. Yeah, well, all that water has to go somewhere and at the moment it's heading downstream. Mm. So while a lot of the towns that we've already reported on are cleaning up, it's now hitting these towns further down, you know, where the where the water is travelling. And, you know, it's expected that these New South Wales floods are becoming Australia's most expensive natural disasters too. That's huge, isn't it? It is, it is. With insurers, I mean, they're estimating that this is $5.5 billion in claims that have been lodged so far. But yet, as we know, this water is continuing down. Mm. So really feeling for those towns, but also what that's going to mean going forward with a lot of roads currently damaged for some of those communities. And there's been another mass shooting in the US with seven people shot dead in a Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia. Through the course of the investigation, we believe was a single shooter and we believe that shooter is deceased at this time. That's Leo Kaczynski from the local police and an employee posted a video on TikTok after the shooting suggesting that the store manager was responsible. Just left out the break room, manager come in there, started capping people up in there, started shooting, bro. Wow, if that's true, that's horrific. So this shooting comes less than a week after five people were killed in an LGBTIQ plus nightclub in Colorado Springs. Yeah, and there's a gun violence archive group that tracks gun violence Mm. um, in the US and they've said that there's been 31 mass shootings in the US since just in November. Hmm. And by mass shooting, they mean more than four or more people involved. Uh, And it just makes you wonder... When, when will when will they be talking about gun violence? When will they try to stop what's happening? Never, it seems. And I, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, Tom, about how they were saying that they're not really interested about travelling to the US because they mm. fear that something like this could happen while they're over there visiting. Absolutely. Also overseas, two massive explosions have shaken Jerusalem overnight, killing a teenager and injuring 18 others at a bus station. 
Police say they believe this was a coordinated terrorist attack, the likes of which a bomb like this that Israel has not seen in years. CNN's had us gold reporting from the scene there. And while we're talking about overseas, Tom Scotland has failed in its bid to hold a second referendum vote on becoming independent. Yeah, so there was a Supreme Court ruling overnight and that happened because the British Parliament didn't approve this one. Uh, The last time they did approve one was in 2014, but the voters at the time rejected the prospect of independence by 55% to 45%. So they're not going to get another shot at the title this time around. First players and now fans have been stopped from wearing rainbow colours at FIFA World Cup in Qatar. Yeah, so reports have surfaced of fans at the Wales versus USA game um, having rainbow shirts, hats and other merchandise confiscated by local officials. Some of those reports were people refused entry for wearing this gay pride symbol. Yeah, FIFA has ordered Qatar to stop the crackdown and on the field, Japan has pulled off uh, a massive upset to beat Germany two goals to one. It's over. It's happened again. So good news for Japan. Not so good for Australia. Um, we were up one goal to nil, but then France scored four more. So 4-1, we lost against France. We'll need to win or draw our next two pool games to get to the round of 16, and we play Tunisia on Saturday night. It's sounding pretty awkward, this World Cup, isn't it? I thought once the football started there'd be less news stories about these other issues about human rights. But the crackdown on first on alcohol, then the flags on the players' arms, and now in the stands, it's just so extreme. Yeah, and I did notice, though, that uh, Alex uh, Scott, the former Arsenal women's player, and she's also a sports commentator now that she's left football, uh, appeared on a BBC cross with a one love band on yeah. and it got the you know it got the social media sphere talking yeah well the bbc's gone pretty hard on it you know they didn't put the opening ceremony on their main channel instead they showed a documentary about the human rights abuses in qatar man <laughs> so the bbc's not holding back but neither are the local authorities which is putting fifa in a pretty awkward position they've asked those qatari officials to stop doing that we'll see what happens All right, Rihanna, we'll catch you tomorrow morning for the headlines. In just a moment, Antoinette is going to join me as we look at why China has taken Australia out of the deep freeze. So the Chinese president had some very kind words to say about our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, when they met last week. They met for just over half an hour in Bali. The first time an Australian leader had met President Xi since 2016, Antoinette. Pretty big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. Not only the meeting, but some of the language Mm. that was used. So President Xi, through an interpreter, said that relationship deserved to be cherished. I also said that in the past few years, the China-Australia relationship has had some difficulties. This is something that we would not like to see. He also said he'd noticed that since Anthony Albanese had taken office, that Albo's language towards the China relationship had been constructive and that he attaches great importance to Anthony Albanese's opinion. Yeah, so you contrast those very warm words to the cold hostility, like the trade bans of $20 billion that we've seen, the list of 14 grievances they sent the Australian media in 2020. And it's pretty easy to see that our relationship with China has improved. So let's find out what's going on. Joanna Chu has spent a decade tracking China's rise. She's a Vancouver-based journalist for the Toronto Star, also the author of China Unbound, A New World Disorder, 
She's also a former correspondent in Hong Kong and Beijing. Joanna, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. So looking at that meeting last week, does that tell you that Australia is officially out of the diplomatic deep freeze with China? Well, it's definitely a positive sign. The last time she had a meeting with an Australian prime minister was 2016. Um, So this is definitely significant. Even though it was just a half-hour meeting in Bali and no breakthroughs or agreements were made, the way kind of China does diplomacy, they kind of want to have these almost ceremonial first meetings to break the ice. And it would follow um, that ongoing and subsequent negotiations and meetings might take place. So in your book, you analyse Australia's relationship with China, but also Canada and other countries. So is there a pattern or a systematic process as to how China pressures other countries and then changes its position to a more mm-hmm. more friendly posture? Yeah, well, we're kind of actually in uncharted waters. My book kind of starts at kind of the scene around the 2008 Summer Olympics when after some decades of being pretty close to the world, Beijing was taking a more friendly um, and open attitude towards the rest of the world and talking to Australian and Canadian and American diplomats around that time, they told me that the diplomats from China that they came across seemed very genuine and kind of wanting to really know about the world, learn more about the world and have friendlier ties and stronger trade relations. But in before the pandemic, um, at least from my perspective as Canadian, and I think it kind of charts around the time that relations with Australia went sour, increasing issues with countries realizing that actually for decades, uh, since um, you know my research has shown at least the 80s, uh, Beijing has actually, while it's been having these kind of up and down and friendlier tones towards Western nations, have also been facilitating and organizing these networks of uh, foreign influence and interference in other countries, especially in countries like Australia, Canada, US, UK, where many Chinese immigrants relocated. But I argue that some of this growing awareness of the national security issues and the foreign interference issues coming from Beijing, those are actually long-standing problems that, uh, you know, democracies it's more than the case that they have only recently realized the extent that these things are going on. The Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau, his interactions with Xi Jinping were quite different. So, yeah, that's a really interesting mm-hmm. point, and it was something that got picked up by the newspapers here in Australia, that Justin Trudeau, your Prime Minister, was publicly rebuked by President Xi for telling your media about comments made mm-hmm. during a conversation they had. So a very different vibe to the one we just Mm -hmm. talked about just before we started our interview. We read out some of the language President Chi used about Anthony Albanese and it was, um, as Antoinette says, almost like a warm hug. So (laughs) why why such a different reaction to Trudeau compared to Albanese? So what happened was that our intelligence services have recently briefed senior Canadian government officials that China had covertly funded at least 11 Mm. federal candidates Mm. in our last elections and that this was a campaign to try to supposedly install more Beijing-friendly politicians into our our government. And Trudeau had told media that he actually raised this issue with Xi. 
But that's quite normal, isn't it, for a, a Western leader to tell his own media outlets what went on mm-hmm. in a meeting in general terms. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So is it a very deliberate decision by President Xi to publicly rebuke him for that? It looked like an off-the-cuff moment, but I wonder in the, the context of the way and the processes around China manage their diplomacy, whether that was a really deliberate strategy to do that in public. Mm-hmm. So I covered Chinese politics in Beijing for years, and I never caught an off-the-cuff, informal, significant uh, conversation between Xi and leaders. It's not the way China does diplomacy and deals with its media is very different. It is really significant that, you know, Chinese President Xi also met with U.S. President Biden. And that meeting, given all the tensions with the U.S., was fairly also friendly. And Biden also raised um, human rights issues, um, Taiwan. I think China treats different countries differently. It treats smaller countries like Canada with less respect. And um, in fact, I think Beijing feels like if the Canadian prime minister raises these kind of thorny issues right away as they're trying to reach out and smooth things over, that is insulting because as a smaller country, they should go through the way things should go, um, have a more closed or private meeting first and then uh, have subsequent conversations afterwards, which is what uh, had happened with seemingly with the Australian prime minister. So some of the country here is that we got a better reception because we stood our ground in the war of words and exports over the past couple of years. But other commentary suggests that the weak Chinese economy means they need to embrace countries like ours that supply them Mm. vital commodities. Why do you think they soften their stance to Australia, especially in light of the comments you've just made about, you know, Canada being seen as a as a smaller country and lower in the pecking order of importance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... I guess Australia and Canada would both kind of fall within the middle power country category. But the difference partly um, is that perhaps the crisis with over Meng Wanzhou on Huawei of Canada was overall more heated in a way that the tensions have not resolved in any way. Mm. Although Australia also allegedly has its own hostages or political prisoners who are Australian in China. Mm. Um, This has, to me as an observer, hasn't dominated the narrative quite as much. But in Canada, I think the average Canadian public opinion of China has really, there's gotten really negative over this hostage shaking of our uh, citizens. And trade, I think the general consensus is that China's trade with Canada, while being our third largest overall didn't take up a huge proportion of our overall trade. Canada being next door to the U.S. meant that for a long time, the U.S. supplied most of you know Canada's international trade. Whereas mm-hmm. Australia being in the Asia Pacific, um, actually both ways, I think there's a bit more of a more robust and longer lasting uh, trade relations, including in commodities, including the movement of Chinese students studying in Australia, Overall, it is a bit more robust. And one of the sources of tension with Australia in recent years was that the previous Australian Prime Minister called for an inquiry on the origin of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. And with Xi Jinping consolidating his power in the recent party congress, I think it looks like smoothing relations over with Australia and the U.S. is among 
are his top priorities. Mm. So the question is, is it us or them that's changed here? It, it seems like possibly a little bit of both. Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. Whereas in, in Canada's position, Trudeau was prime minister throughout the last mm. years of growing tension with China, whereas um, a new leader coming in in Australia, a different political party, um, some, you know, Kevin Rudd had an uh, op-ed saying that Albanese has abandoned the megaphone diplomacy of his predecessor. So I think a lot of what China's actions, even though China is not a democracy, it feels like it has to answer to its citizens. And a lot of the motivation behind the state's action, I found in my research, is actually being cognizant that they've stoked and encouraged this nationalism among Chinese citizens. So if they're cooling relationships with Australia, there's kind of has to be a way to justify that to the public. And it's more neat to say there's a new prime minister coming in mm. in Australia that seems to be more friendly, seems to be more reasonable and someone that China would want to work with. You mentioned our former prime minister, Kevin Rudd. Um, he also said that we could be dragged into a new war with China within five years unless the US and its allies deter Beijing from moving in on Taiwan. How likely do you think that is? Yeah, so that's really interesting because I was just in Taiwan uh, along with many other journalists who mm. visited or relocated to Taiwan in recent years. And on the ground, even though people are living their lives as usual, the risk of war um, that even Taiwanese military experts are predicting is at least a higher point relative to where it has been in recent years. So Australia, some experts say, out of any of American allies, might be most likely to get drawn into a military conflict involving the U.S., like China and Taiwan, um, partly because of the strong military ties between Australia and America, mm -hmm. um, as well as actual statements. So Australian opposition leader Peter Dutton said last year that if he was the country's defense minister, that it would be inconceivable that we wouldn't support the U.S. if a crisis broke out in Taiwan, mm -hmm. um, even though he, he wasn't defense minister. I think it kind of points to more political appetites relatively in Australia towards supporting the U.S. at this level than, than I've seen in, in other countries where possibility of getting involved in this kind of conflict seems quite remote. That was Joanna Chu, and her book is called China Unbound. And I think after hearing her analysis, it sounds like Australia's in a, a pretty good position, or at least a better position. I think Scott Morrison, our former Prime Minister, politicised the China relationship to, to try and win votes here at home, not really calculating the impact that might have had on our export markets. And now there's a confluence of good factors for us. We've got a more moderate government uh, coming in right as China hits a bit of economic turbulence and appears to be taking a less aggressive stance to Australia and America. So we'll wait and see what actually happens if there's anything tangible, but hopefully they start to reopen some of those export markets. On tomorrow's briefing, crypto's year from hell. Listener.